welcome everyone to an edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupo. Thank you again for joining me on today's episode. Now, we are continuing with our series on civil disobedience and idolatry. And I hope that you had an opportunity uh, to tune into the last episode I did where I introduced the topic of idolatry. What, what is idolatry? How can we kind of recognize it? What does Scripture uh, have to say about it? How is it portrayed in some of the key passages of Romans chapter 1 or the book of Isaiah? And what are some characteristics of idolatry, namely replacing um, God with something that's created, putting something else in the place of God, and hoping that that thing satisfies and does what only God can do. But before we go into today's episode, as we continue that discussion, I'm going to start off with our law of the day, which is Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Okay, so this this law is similar to the law that we looked at last time regarding not talking about other gods, the pagan gods, and and speaking about how they might have, you know, functioned and how people served those gods in the past. The, the idea here in Deuteronomy is that Israel is, again, to avoid any temptation towards idolatry. Now, the temptation will still be there from the surrounding nations. Even if they purged the land, there are still pagan nations to the south, north, and uh, east. And you have, you have Egypt, kind of more in the south-southwest. You have other tribes. You have, uh, later on, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, uh, the Hittites. You have a whole bunch of other groups, and they're all pagans, so they're all going to tempt Israel to follow after their gods. Now, Israel also is specifically being told, don't ask about the gods that the Canaanites and those people of the land serve. Um, and again, the idea is, uh, you, you Israel, you just purged the land. God gave you the land. So, so don't try to be like those nations, because the whole reason why those nations are purged is because of their sin, because of their wickedness. And God is very explicit that Israel needs to worship God in the way that God commands. And it's interesting because idolatry leads to certain practices. God makes it very clear that the abominable things that those pagans did, they did those things for their gods. They burned their sons and their daughters. So referencing here uh, human sacrifice to the god Moloch, they did those things for their god. Um, So the actions that are done for idols are wicked. And Israel is to not add to God's word, which would be like... um, creating man-made rules 
which later on the Pharisees will be guilty of, and Israel is not to take away from God's word or ignoring certain rules, which in some ways the Pharisees also did. They would um, ignore the weightier matters of the law, but they focused all of their attention on tithing spices and every little thing that they had. Now, similar to the law we looked at last time, when it comes to idolatry in the land of Israel, that was essentially committing treason. Remember, every nation, and, and, and even the pagan nations believed this, every nation had its gods, and those gods were sovereign over the land. So Egypt had its gods, and those gods were the lords over the land of Egypt. That's where they exercised their domain. It's not too far different than what we see in the Roman and Greek world, where Neptune, or Poseidon, is the god of the sea. So when you're on the ocean, you are in his domain. So you should make sacrifices and offerings and prayers to, the, to that god, if you want that god's protection. So, you know, and you have Mars and Aries as the god of war. Again, that's their domain of those particular gods. And you see this in the ancient Near East as well, like Baal means essentially a lord, but Baal is a pagan god. But a lot of times there were multiple Baals, you know, there wasn't just one. Uh, the scripture talks about Baal Peor, or the Baal of the land known as Peor. So that particular region belonged to that particular god. So the idea here is that idolatry or worshiping another god is tantamount to undermining the current gods of the land and basically committing treason and establishing a whole a whole new system of law and order, a whole new system of government. So uh, that's where it, it kind of brings into modern application because every government today, every land, every country has its authorities, it has its gods, its final authorities, the things that it values, and anybody that tries to undermine that authority or revolt against, overturn that authority and establish a, a whole other authority, well, that's treason. And those governments are right to investigate and to look at that kind of activity and to try to stop it from happening. Because at the end of the day, all countries are covenantal. They, they have established covenants, whether it's written or unwritten. They have values. They have a system of law and order. They have a god of that system. Whatever the highest authority in the land is, is the god of the system. And if you're going to go against that, you're going to get the attention of the government and you might be guilty of treason. So at the end of the day, uh, boundaries are always established to define anything. To define anything in the world, you have to have an idea of what is it and what is not it. What is in and what is out. So uh, this is true in, in nations and all cultures. Um, now applying this law to the church, again, to abandon God's word is lethal. To add to God's word, to subtract from God's word is the, one of the worst things you can do. I mean, there are curses in Deuteronomy and in the book of Revelation about um, the plagues of Egypt being you know, being sent upon someone, may the, a curse upon them, may the plagues of Egypt be upon that person who adds or takes away from the word of God. I mean, essentially, to do that means 
you're twisting God's word. You are adding to God's word, your own word. That's very presumptuous to suggest that your word, man's word, is equivalent to God's. Or you're taking away from God's word, basically saying that God's word is not good enough. It doesn't meet your standard of what should be the final authority. Now, this law, again, in Deuteronomy, does not have any civil penalty attached to it. But, like we talked about last time, the law, the intent is to get folks thinking about you know, idolatry and to avoid it, to, to be careful uh, about even, even flirting with or the idea of going after other gods and asking about how those gods functioned and how to go about serving those gods. The temptation to you know, tap into pagan power in the hopes that it will bless you. Uh, Israel is to avoid that. Now, there, there are later uh, disciplines and punishments for those who actually engage in treason, one of which would be trying to get other people to worship false gods and to stop worshiping the one true God in Israel. If you start spreading false teaching and on, on purposely trying to convert people to paganism, then you are essentially committing treason and trying to overthrow the entire constitutional order. So that would be worthy of the penalty. So that is, in a short summary, the uh, description of that law and the application of it. So it relates, though, to our main topic today, which is, of course, idolatry and civil disobedience. And I will see how far we get today. I don't think we're going to be able to get to modern application yet because there's some historical things I want to go over that I think you will find particularly useful um, from the Roman Empire. But first, how to detect idols. Talked a little bit about this last time. But there are several different signs of idolatry when you're looking at either a person, a family, or a culture's idols. First, you have panic or fear when the idol is threatened or being taken away, uh, because the idolaters are putting their hope in that idol. So if you lose it, if it's taken from you, or if someone threatens to destroy it, well, you just put all your hope in the idol. And if you lose that idol, you lose your hope. Another, you know, to look at, again, the example of a very popular fiction story, The Lord of the Rings. I mentioned this last time with the character Gollum, but the idea of the Ring of Power is an idol because everyone who gives into it, they can't stand the idea of losing it. And certainly Gollum is is one of the characters that you see this quite often. Uh, When he loses it or it's taken from him, there is panic and fear um, that it's gone. And he can't find it. Where is his precious? So that is one response. But it goes beyond panic and fear. It then goes towards anger. Anger against any threats against the idol. So those who seek to destroy or steal the idol, um, you're going to be very angry and have rage against them because, of course, they're taking away your only hope. They're taking away your joy and your satisfaction and your peace. So you might lash out against them. You're going to try to defend the honor of the idol or its existence to stop them from destroying it. And aside from anger, you're going to threaten them as well. You're going to try to instill fear in the threat, 
in the, the person that's threatening your idol so that they understand that they will be punished if they even try to touch your idol or to mess with it. And then, of course, the last part, kind of mentioned already before, is affection and obsession with the idol. Affection and love towards, towards the idol itself and towards those who join you in idolatry. Um, again, idolatry loves company. Those who have idols of the same things, find they find their community. They find their common ground uh, and their, together, their, their general love together. Um, and, and they're kind of bound to one another. So as long as each of them is in love with the idol, they can all get along. They can all be friends, uh, and so, you know, you know, so on. So um, that is just some of the indications you'll see of idols in, in any culture. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that idols can be uh, dark things, just purely bad things, or they can be good things that have been twisted for a bad purpose. So an example of the first is the idol Moloch, which is a, a dark, evil, sinister kind of character. It's a half-man, half-bull monstrosity, kind of like the Minotaur, right? It's not natural. It's not normal. It's an abomination, right? Uh, but it's this god that the people of the land of Canaan worshipped uh, in order to get its blessings. Another thing that this time is a, was, it was a good thing but was twisted was the bronze serpent that Moses made in the wilderness. If you recall from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, uh, Moses set up this fiery serpent and put it on a pole so that everyone who is bitten by the real serpents, when that person looks upon the pole, uh, you shall live. And it says, Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's Numbers 21, 9. Of course, very interestingly, is that later on in Israel's culture, that became an idol. And it's explicitly mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 18. And here's what it says about um, the king Hezekiah. He removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. So that's in chapter 18, verse 4. So it's interesting that Hezekiah has to destroy this bronze serpent that used to be a good thing, but had since become an idol. Um, and it was given a name, Nehushtan. Uh, so, uh, I, an idol can be a good thing or, or a bad thing. We have other examples, of course. We have Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. I mean, nothing is inherently wrong with golden statues. Our culture, even today, has statues all over the place. We have marble statues, stone statues, metal statues, um, and maybe even some golden ones out there. I don't know. But the issue is that it was formed for the purpose of idolatry. Uh, so, an idol can be anything that's created or man-made. Statues can be idols, but don't have to be. Music could be an idol, doesn't have to be. But Nebuchadnezzar used music in an idolatrous way because what was the trigger that he had made for people to worship his golden statue? It was music. It was the harp, the lyre, the bagpipe, you know, all these things. And when the music played, the people had to worship. And he did it again for Daniel's three friends. He, he even tells them, like, you know, when the music plays, if you're going to bow down, that's great. 
But if not, I'm throwing you in the furnace and no, no one can save you. So again, music can be an idol. It doesn't have to be. So even something godly and good doesn't, can be an idol, um, although it might not be originally. So to detect an idol, you have to kind of look at what the culture is doing with it and how they respond to it. And a couple examples from scripture would be found in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in the country and around Ephesus, and he gets himself in trouble. There's a riot that breaks out. And the reason is because in chapter 19, verse 23, we see uh, that Demetrius, a silversmith, who's not a Christian, he's a pagan, he made statues of Artemis, and that was his business. He made a ton of money off of that. But because of the Christians, people were not buying idols as much anymore. And he says this in verse 25, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So basically, their god, their idol was threatened. Not only was her honor at stake and her glory, but also his bottom line. And him and the other merchants that were with them, had they lost Artemis, they'd have to find other jobs. And so the result is the people get enraged in verse 28, and they start chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the whole city is thrown to a riot. And Paul is essentially arrested. And there's a whole scenario with the, the magistrates coming out and um, trying to calm people down and stop the riot from going on and, and things like that. So the point is, is that that is the result of idolatry. When, when you hit their money book, uh, you'll, see the, you'll see the reaction of the idols. Another situation happens a few chapters earlier in Acts chapter 16. Now, there, there is a situation where Paul and Silas are kind of walking around, but there's a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and, you know, um, helped her masters make a lot of money from fortune telling. She followed Paul and she kept crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed you the way of salvation, not doing it in a loving, supporting way, but kind of a mocking way. She did this for many days. Paul becomes annoyed, casts her out, and then what happens? Another riot. Verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So, again, when the idols are targeted and removed, threatened, the culture reacts typically with violence and rage. 
So this leads us to how Christians came to engage in civil disobedience. Like I said before, all cultures have their foundational beliefs or gods that they worship. Any group of people to be united must have something in common, a common set of beliefs and rights. And this is interesting. It's stated by um, St. Augustine in the three or four hundreds in his book, City of God. He takes some time to define what is a nation or a commonwealth or a state. And I think his definition is pretty good and pretty unique and very accurate. He says this, a state or commonwealth is a group of people who have a common love. Now, let's think in, a common love. Now, it could be a common uh, language or ethnicity, but even then, there can still be division amongst a group of people, right? You know, just think of the American Civil War or the Civil War in England, common language, common culture, common ethnicity, but not common loves. And this causes nations to divide and split and wars to break out. So any nation is a group of people that have a common love. Now, of course, whatever they love, it could be an idol. It could be the one true God. It could be a lot of different things, right? But whatever they, they love, that sets the, the tone. That sets the foundation for the culture. Uh, what they love defines how they treat people, how they treat others, how they treat those who attack what they love, uh, what their priorities are in their laws and in their policies and in their spending of their money. You know, how they live is, is impacted by what they love. Now, of course, any group that gets into conflict with the common loves or the gods of that culture, that group won't fit in. Okay, now either that group of people will conform, so they'll, they'll join in to love the same thing that the culture loves, or they'll be temporarily tolerated because they're not really a threat, kind of a minor group, or that group will become a threat and ultimately take over or change the culture. So toleration, that only happens in certain circumstances because the idols of the culture, well, they're not directly threatened. And this other group that doesn't conform, they're not that big. They're not that powerful. It's not that big a deal to give them a pass. It's not that big a deal to tolerate them, even if they don't conform to our culture and to our loves. Um, or maybe even both sides compromise and they find a new common love to replace the old one, although that typically has a, doesn't really happen. Now, if a, if a minority group conforms, there's no problem. If a group attempts to dominate, converting people, uh, pulling them away from uh, the loves of the culture to a different love, uh, then there'll be conflict because false gods don't go quietly. Idols don't like to be torn down. Cultures protect what they love and what they hold dear. And this is exactly why the Christians in the Roman Empire faced great persecution. Now, initially they were tolerated. They were not tolerated amongst the Jews. Because for many different reasons, obviously, the Jews, many of them did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. And many of the first Christians were Jews. So from the Roman perspective, they just saw um, Christianity initially as just another Jewish sect. Now, the Jews had been given exemptions by Rome regarding idolatry. Rome had kind of demanded or expected all peoples to worship 
or pay homage or adore the genius of the emperor. Okay, it's, it's kind of like an emperor worship or ancestor worship kind of thing. But the Jews had been given exemptions by Rome because they were a specific ethnic nation. And they argued that they would be destroyed, they would no longer exist, if they did that. They could not conform. And Rome agreed to tolerate them. Mostly because it was too much of a pain to make them conform. Because there had already been, you know, many different riots and fighting in Jerusalem. And just a whole bunch of problems. And trying to make the Jews conform and, and give up their temple is not going to go very well. Uh, and they're also a pretty small minority, so it's not that big a deal that the Jews are left alone. They don't have to conform. Um, as long as they don't stir up any trouble, it's it's fine. So at first, the Christians were considered just another group of Jews, uh, but the Jews persecuted the Christians there. Now, eventually, the Christians got the attention of the Romans because Gentiles who were Roman started becoming Christian and they weren't Jewish. So they were adopting practices that were not Roman, to quote from the masters of the slave girl in, in Acts chapter 16, because they weren't engaged in Romanitas, which means Romanness. There's this idea of being Roman. What it means to be a Roman um, was highly valued in that culture. And it was okay for Jews not to be Roman. We, they kind of already let that one go, but it was not okay for Romans to not be Roman or to give up their Romanness. And the Christians, uh, their practices were viewed as strange. They wouldn't attend the gladiatorial games, typically, not only because those games were often associated with idolatry and worship of the emperors, but because of the, just the nasty violence and the, and the bloodshed that took place in the gladiatorial games. They also didn't typically attend the theater and other spectacles because there's a lot of lewdness and inappropriate sexual behavior. Um, and again, coupled with idolatry in those events. They also adopted babies that were discarded to be killed. Um, again, Romans would typically just discard their children that they didn't want outside the city walls and the children would die from exposure or eaten by wild animals. And the Christians would go around the city at night and pick up the babies and adopt them. The Christians also practiced their worship of Jesus, of course, on one day of the week, and they tried to rest on one day of a week, not working all seven. In the Roman Empire, there was no regular weekend, if you will. The idea of a, of a rest on a weekend just wasn't part of their culture. Same thing with other cultures like Egypt and, and Babylon. So um, they might, you know, have days off for festivals and, and games and things like that. But uh, a regular weekly period of rest wasn't really part of it. But the Christians engaged in that. Uh, Christians refused to be bribed and they chose to deal honest, honestly. Now, it was in a culture that typically engaged in bribery. I mean, you were expected to do certain things if someone handed you money, um, even if it meant going against the rules. But Christians wouldn't do that, and it would, get, it would get them in trouble. And they gathered together regardless of class distinction. So you have the churches who are made up of slaves, masters, nobles, and, and plebes, and, and you know all kinds of classes and ethnicities and, and groups there. And that was kind of a weird thing from the eyes of many of the Romans. And of course, the real sticking point was that they refused to offer the required sacrifices to Caesar. Now, I'm going to spend the last couple minutes here on this topic. What was happening 
with emperor worship. Well, the idea was that you worship the genius of the emperor. It's kind of hard sometimes, right? Because it wasn't so much that, you know, Augustus was God and you're just worshiping him and offering prayers to him. The genius of the emperor is kind of like a veneration of the individual human spirit, the power that is active inside a man. And, of course, the emperors were the embodiment of power, so there's there's that. And the idea also is that spirits of ancestors would influence their descendants. Uh, one famous Roman a politician, Cicero, he said, let each person regard his own dead as divine. So there was an idea of ancestor worship, your family members that have been deceased are divine in some sense, and also, of course, the emperor, the embodiment of the Roman system, the embodiment of Roman power, glory, and prestige. He, um, you would you would honor and venerate the, the genius of the emperor, um, not necessarily just that particular physical person. Um, a lot of times, the emperors were not quote-unquote, divine until they died. So, uh, historically, for example, the Emperor Augustus, he showed humility. I mean, when he united the empire um, under one rule in peace, um, a lot of people tried to venerate him, and he publicly was very humble about it. He didn't command people to, um, to worship him or to set up temples in his name, but he didn't hinder it either. When it began to happen... Uh, he had no problem with it. And after his death, the Senate bestowed upon him divine titles uh, there. So now, in private, the worship of the emperor was very simple. You just burn incense to his image. So you could have a, a picture or just a little statue. Um, the image of the emperor, you would burn incense to that. But public worship could be more elaborate, where, you know, there'd be games and and festivals and shows and all kinds of stuff. And it was all wrapped in together because the Romans, they didn't really distinguish politics from worship um, like we would today. There was really no separation of church and state. The idea is that the religion served the state. The religion was a force of unity, um, worshiping the, the imperial gods, kept the empire united and strong. And it was the duty of citizens to participate in that. And if they didn't, it was looked down upon and kind of akin to treason because the essence of divinity was power and the emperor was the embodiment of imperial power. And to, to not partake of the cultural worship of that was essentially, in the eyes of the Romans, to um, seek or desire the collapse and death of the empire. I mean, if you don't do it, what does that mean? What does that say about you? You're really not on the same team. You're not part of the team here of trying to keep things going and keep things strong. And the Christians, this is where they had a problem with what was being asked, asked of them. Christians honored the emperor as a ruler, but not as God. And the Romans refused to admit that that distinction was possible. They, they just viewed it as an act of disunity and disloyalty. They didn't really understand how it was possible for Christians to submit to the emperor, to honor him, to serve him, but yet not participate in burning incense and offering sacrifices and participating in the games and other things that were all meant to foster unity together. So this is what ends up 
resulting in persecution, which we'll get to um, the Roman response to this Christian behavior um, in the next episode, and we'll see about uh, maybe bringing it in for some modern application and tying it in also to civil disobedience. How do you respond when the culture and the government wants you to engage in a practice that is basically being claimed um, to unify the culture together and to save the save the state, and that if you don't participate in it, you are a threat to society. All right, so anyways, I hope that this was a useful, informative episode for you. Again, if you have any questions or other topics you would like me to address, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com, and by all means, please share the show with a friend. Give the thumbs up, stars, reviews. All those things are quite helpful to get this out to more folks. So until next time, take care and God bless.